10 past 9, and that's the choice of our guest presenter today, Whitney Houston with One Moment in Time. Eleanor saying, now that's a song I love. So that's the choice of our guest presenter. Who is she? Her name is Cynthia Stimple. She last year authored or penned a book called Hijackers on Board, How One Courageous Whistleblower Fought Against the Capture of SAA. And the book looks at uh, how she became a whistleblower in stopping state capture at SAA. It's an extraordinary book and actually a completely fascinating read. Uh, and we asked her to come online. Cynthia is also the co-founder of Citizens of Conscious. That sounds like something I need to be part of. And she also is uh, part of a new organization called Whistleblower House, which was launched in February as an intervention to protect whistleblowers. And that is something of absolutely critical importance as well. Much to get through in the next hour, including a, a great choice of book that Cynthia has suggested to us. I'd say I would rate that as one of my top 10 and um, a lot to talk about with her very interesting guests as well. Cynthia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Michelle, for having me and thank you to all the listeners for tuning in this morning. So we always like to ask our guest uh, their first choice of song, One Moment in Time. Um, it does feel as though there was one moment in time and that was when you made the massive decision to blow the whistle on what you found happening at SAA. Was that your moment or uh, does the song mean many, many, many other moments for you as well? <laughs> um, Michelle, I, yes, that was a huge moment in time that I had to make that decision. Yeah. So, yes, it relates to that song. And in my life, I must say, there are other moments but this is one of those great moments where one has to make a decision that changes your life from there on. Yes. Talk to us about the other moments in time that uh, you have experienced that you will mark down for yourself as well. Well, others are when I uh, younger, obviously, when I had my children, mm. um, both daughters. The, the day they're born, you can almost see this miracle that you're holding in your hand and and your arms that you know that your life is going to change and that your heart is is overflowing with love just for them mm. and no matter what happens you're going to protect them so i think though though that was a crucial time where both my girls were born and i think also with marriage one's life um has a new way of looking and and taking into account another person's life and and cares and fears and concerns that you have to combine together so yes so it's it's all in yeah those type of moments yeah. i think you know, Cynthia, um, yes. you mention your daughters and you talk about this idea of wanting to protect them. And a little bit later, we'll come to the idea that in many ways, uh, your experience as being a whistleblower meant that they had to protect you. And uh, and I don't mean that literally, but, but, but maybe philosophically and metaphysically as well. Uh, I, this idea of family and daughters and growing up is, is an important one. And in many of the books that I've read now, around whistleblowing accounts, which for the panel last week at Time of the Writer, what really struck me were the values and lessons that one grows up. And you, I've heard you tell that story of, um, I think it was your sister taking a pen from a shop or something and 
what you learned from that moment. Talk to us about the values that you were brought up with. Um, thank you for that question, Michelle. It's such an important question when it comes to values, especially right now in our country. So my parents were absolutely strict with us growing up. On, um, there was the do's and don'ts all the time. Um, but in action, we, we, we got a shock when we realized what they did mean. So this particular scene is when we had, my mom had gone to a hairdresser. It was a Friday. My dad had fetched us and taken us to fetch my mom. And um, there my sister had picked this pen up. And he's, their, their sayings were always, don't take what's not yours. Return what's been given to you. You know, they had all these um, sayings to us. And my sister had brought this home. And when my dad discovered it, he made her go back. He took her right back and said she had to return it to um, the hairdressers. And that wasn't the only one. It, another little story is when we were girls and we took dolls, we borrowed dolls from our neighbors who were not too close. They were down the road from us. And when we came home with the dolls, my mom merrily marched us back <laughs> to the home and said... They are not supposed to take anything that does not belong to them here. Thank you very much for your kindness. They can come back and play again tomorrow. Yeah. They cannot bring it home. So, yes, so it was very much ingrained in us that um, we had to do the right thing, that we could not take what is not ours, that we had to behave and conduct ourselves in a certain way. So that was very much um told to us on a daily basis. And my parents also walked the talk, yeah. you know, so it wasn't them saying something to us and behaving differently. They behaved the same way. And so they were a very good example for us. That very good example then led to the narrative that comes out of hijackers on board. Very briefly, talk to us about that moment where you had uh, been following through with a series of engagements and finally decided that's it this is something I have to do I need to blow the whistle on what is being seen and what is uh, allegedly state capture so in a quick nutshell there Michelle is that we we work through a process of of governance of our policies and procedures so everyone is guided by that and here as, as each time our processes were completed, um, my sense was that our senior management, the acting CEO and CFO together with our board, were going against this mm. um, sort of um, processes and uh, the policies. And my role, as I saw it, was to advise them and say, you know, here's our policies, this is what we should be doing, which I subsequently did. However, there was this constant change around it. And when I spoke to my peer group and said, look, we as a team need to stand up and speak out about this, they all said, no, we need our jobs. We're not going to challenge anything. So it, it meant for me to, to, to start speaking out, and which I did do firstly in writing to my boss saying, you know what, we're not doing what's right here. We should be doing this. Here's what our policies are stating. And then, obviously, the next step we board wanted to bypass the whole procurement um, of, of funds through Treasury and do it via the 
um, the procurement department by getting a transaction advisor. And then when we got the transaction advisor, they then changed the scope, which was beyond the normal uh, prescribed um, method of 15%. If you're changing or adding to the scope, they went beyond that. So obviously I realized that I have to do something about it. And so I did speak within the organization. I followed all those processes that when nothing happened, I had to still take it out to National Treasury and beyond National Treasury to Alta. We're talking to Cynthia Stimple. She's the author of Hijackers on Board, uh, How One Courageous Whistleblower Fought Against the Capture of SAA. She's also the co-founder of Citizens of Conscious, and we'll find out more about that, and also a participant in something called Whistleblower House, and we'll get the details on that right after the break. Michelle Constant on SAFM. Our guest today is Cynthia Stimple, co-founder of Citizens of Conscious, author of the book Hijackers on Board, and also a member of Whistleblower House, and she'll explain that to us in a moment. Cynthia, uh, in the book you quote uh, David Lewis, the former CEO of Corruption Watch, as suggesting that there are three types of whistleblowers. Could you just break that down for us? Thank you, Michelle. He describes it as the spectrum, the first um, those being sort of um, pure and that when they see something wrong and they speak out and they um, act on their beliefs and their principles up front. And he quoted saying that people like Cynthia are those on the right up front um, purist type whistleblower. He then says the, the next would be those that um are sort of caught up in the maelstrom of the um, corruption. They can see what's happening, but they need their facts and figures first um, and um, before they speak out. And he mentions uh, Suzanne Daniels in mm. that. But then he goes to the far extreme where he states that there are those that are so ingrained in it already and part of the the corruption and that when they realize how deep the corruption is and how deep they are caught up in this um, uh, corruption storm, they then um, speak up because they either have their back to the wall or they feel that there is no other option for them. And he mentions Angelo Agrizzi. Yep. So those were his depiction. I think um, Mandy Wiener in her book called The Whistleblowers, she, she writes a similar spectrum as well. Yeah. Cynthia, in the decision to go this route, to be a whistleblower, I mean, A, it makes you a patriot, but the impact on your world has been profound. Um, and I go back to what you said earlier about protecting your daughters, but also having to have family and the role of family support. Uh, in one part of the book, you, you, you write about just wanting to stay in bed and cry and having to force yourself out of bed. Talk to us about that change in your life. So um, it's literally once you whistle blow, and I, I can speak for myself, is that I felt I was quite naive in that I thought I was doing the right thing and that once I speak out, the world will continue because someone else will take the problem and solve it, you know. Uh, but it doesn't happen. You, the whistleblower, is that messenger that gets kept in the gut 
and you writhing there on the floor, not knowing what hit you and why it hit you. So um, the feeling is is tremendous that you you you're not completely out of kilter, and you have to find your way again, start all over again, get up and dust yourself off. Literally, that's what it, it felt like for me. And without my family support, they were my mainstream. They had my back and they were there to guide me. Um, The second is obviously my faith, my inner faith that I have in God. I believe that kept me on the right path. And um, you mentioned earlier about the support of my daughters. They even today, though, they are there physically and mentally and emotionally Mm. support because it's really still important that they be. Your life doesn't really get back together. I don't think any whistleblower can tell me that they are fully back there, um, even though they may have um, found work or some purpose in their lives. Um, but you're not fully where you were before. And so your life takes on a new trajectory and you have to focus on a new way to yeah. to give yourself purpose and meaning. You know, we all know the saying, don't shoot the messenger. And I suppose part of what you're talking about, life not getting back together, <coughs> is is not just around work and having to, as you say, get work, but also around things like safety and security, constantly feeling like uh, afraid. And and I know that you have uh, spoken about that as well. Talk to us about how one deals with that, the, 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 the literal violence of shooting the messenger, so to speak. Yes, it's... Um you know, it's the one part is when you wake up and suddenly you find that there's cars outside your home and you look at them frowning, okay, um, my neighbors is not having a party, um, you know, we know normally, and you check on your neighborhood watch if there's um, whose car that is with the number plate you've, you've taken a photo of and they don't know it. So you start fearing. So the minute you leave your house, you find people are following you. So it's that type of fear that starts setting in that you know it's not a normal um, way of living. And then on top of that, you get um, where your your life has been this normal prior to the whistleblowing. And suddenly you are being ostracized or rejected or your name is being... Um, stated in the paper as either this defiant treasurer or that you've committed financial Mm. misconduct, which immediately puts a spin on on the truth. And you then have to be the person, this messenger has to be the person to defend themselves. And it's really hard that you have to... The onus is on you. The onus is on you to to, to defend yourself. Yeah. Exactly. And that takes um, it far more energy than you anticipated. Worse still, and many whistleblowers can attest to this, is that you have to use legal resources to defend yourself because all you're getting are those charges from your organization that you need to defend it and spend with your own money that you may not even have to defend the truth. So it's far worse than what we anticipate. And hence, many whistleblowers either just give up and and very few win this this race because the 
the perpetrators use have deep pockets and continue this harsh um, fight against the whistleblower. So it's really hard. Talking about uh, getting support, uh, there is the social intervention whistleblower house. Tell us about that. What is great now is that we have found a solution to assist whistleblowers. Um, For you and many of our listeners as well, or whistleblowers have struggled over the past to just find some sort of support. And the whistleblower house has been designed to help the whistleblower along each of the path that they're walking. So for instance, is how do they to whistleblow if they don't know they can come to the whistleblower house and we'll guide them. The second is do they need, they will need legal assistance and we've managed to uh, so far get a few legal fraternities on board who will assist in the process. Some would give pro bono services and others obviously at a small reduced fee. Mm. Um, the third part is that you haven't gone through this, you realize that you're not okay and that you're suffering firstly through why did this happen to me, which results in a depression, which could further be exacerbated into some psychological or psychiatric assistance needed. And so we've discussed with the psychiatric and psychological association of South Africa, and they're willing to help us with um, psychologists to help the whistleblowers. And then thirdly, as we um, negotiating to have whistleblowers uh, far more safe, um, uh, become safe in their environment as in upgrading the security in their homes. And if those need um, sort of a security guard or a a bodyguard to help them when they're traveling or to take their children safely to schools. We're negotiating that service to help um, the the whistleblower and their families. And uh, none but not last but not least is the financial component where whistleblowers suffer extreme financial detriment Mm. that many have lost their homes or cars or their material ways that they through fighting through litigation, they have no more funds and they've been totally destroyed, is now seeking to find funds just to help them to find their dignity, to have their homes back and be able to just survive. So that's part of the, the in a broad nutshell, that we're trying to help whistleblowers. It's interesting. One of our listeners saying that um, whistleblowing uh, makes one one is blackballed and shunned forever and there's no getting away from it. Another one of our listeners saying that it's insulting to use the word whistleblower and we should find another word. And just to note that as far as I remember, the word whistleblower actually comes from the early 19th century in the UK where the police would blow, you know, how the, the, the bobbies on the beat or whatever they were, would blow their whistle when something was going wrong. So that was where the terminology came from. Cynthia, if you had to find another word, I mean, I would go patriot, but there might be more more than that. Would, is there another word that you might consider using? Yes, a witness bearers. You know, you've witnessed something and you, 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 you're talking about it. So I would like the word witness bearers or truth tellers, you know, rather than whistleblowers. I too, um, up front, hated the word whistleblowers and felt that um, I don't want to be called that. It's a shaming mm. term. Yeah. And then I met another whistleblower um, um, uh, from, she was a South African whistleblower now in the UK, 
Wendy Addison, and she said to me, Cynthia, embrace it. Wear it like a cape, like the hero you are, she said to me, <laughs> and embrace it because um, that's what is currently known. And if people um, are treating it as such that it's a negative term, we need to change the connotation. That will be our work. So, yeah, so um, I have embraced the word. I would still like to change it, though, to maybe witness bearers. Um, mm. But while it's in our legislation and while it's in uh, the global um, language lexicon, yeah. um, and lexicon, we will use it as such. Yes. Thank you. Cynthia, you mentioned, uh, and we're going to go to it before we go to your guests who are doing some extraordinary work as well. You mentioned that in the book you talk about how, uh, I think it was a psychologist or therapist, who suggests to you that you should read Viktor Frankl's Man's Searching for Meaning. And it is a powerful book around how we look at meaning in a time of real, real difficulty. I was interested that you feel that that is one of the books that uh, you've engaged with uh, over time. Yes, indeed. Um, I did go to a psychologist um, on recommendation of my daughter, who's a medical doctor, and happy that I did so. And he recommended that I read the book. Yeah. I was embarking yeah. on a long walk at the time, so I purchased yeah, the, the book and I read it on the Camino, yes. And I reread it again and highlighted certain sections with a pencil. And um, what came out strongly for me was his survival, and he writes about many of the others in the concentration camp survival, was that um, it was that they had something beyond themselves that made them survive the concentration camp. Mm. So his wish and his desire was that he wanted to meet his wife again because they were separated. And so he day-to-day -day was his focus. He imagined seeing his wife, he imagined talking to his wife and having conversations about his struggles and he listening to her struggles. Um, there were others that also had a meaning in their lives that they wanted to see their children and they survived. The ones who gave up were the ones that just felt that it's no use, you know, mm. me carrying on for another day. And so for me, that stood out very strongly um, for my journey at the time, that besides this that happened, there has to be something more. My life cannot just be defined by whistleblowing. It has to be more than who I am and beyond that, which at the time was obviously my family and especially my grandkids. When mm. I think of other stories like um, Beck Weathers, of, you know, in 1996, there was that disaster on um, Mount Everest. Mm. And he was many times left for dead that Sherpas walked over him and so did the research, the search party. But he managed to crawl into one of the top camps. And when they found he still yes, had a heartbeat, right. they flew him back to down from the, the mountain and he recovered. And his story is I think is he lost his fingers promised. on his nose or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I that. That. Yeah. First bite. Yeah. And it was he, what kept him going and just crawling and surviving was that he promised his son that, yes, I will come back. You know, so it was that it, the promise is 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 that mm. you love someone beyond you and that you you want to fulfill that promise and 
and that would make what's made him survive. So, so Viktor Frankl's story and and just his whole logotherapy beyond that is is seeing something beyond you and having a purpose beyond you, yeah. but it must be filled with a, a deeper love beyond you. You know your needs and your your wants. Cynthia so is, is our guest, and we're going to go to her second song. Uh, she is, as she describes, a witness bearer and looking at her, the organization that uh, she's been part of called Whistleblower House, also the book that she wrote. And in the book, she describes a, a very powerful moment, a very difficult moment where she's sitting with the chair of SAA and the chair states at the table uh, that it's our time to eat. Uh, and it's, it's an incredibly difficult moment in the book as well. We're going to go to a second song and then uh, we are going to go to Cynthia's wonderful guests and if you do have any questions you're welcome to send them through uh, as we go forward. I see that some of you have already sent in questions and we'll ask her for them in a moment. The Jet Set Breakfast with Michelle Constant.
such a beautiful version. That's Eva Cassidy's version of Over the Rainbow, and it really is a magnificent cover for sure. Our guest is Cynthia Stimple. We are talking to her as a witness bearer and a truth teller. I would also add a real patriot. She is the co-founder of Citizens of Conscious and the author of Hijackers on Board, How One Courageous Whistleblower Fought Against the Capture of SAA. Cynthia, uh, we have a listener uh, question that I'd like to just briefly, if I may, uh, put to you, asking... um, Yeah, we'll just uh, get our engineer to find that question. Um, Let's... Okay. Good morning, Michelle. Tell her there's only minority who disregard her, but the majority salute her. And can may you please ask her how does she really honestly feel about Jacob Zuma? Smoke it, Bushley Park. I salute that lady. Thank you. That's a, an amazing comment. I salute you, and uh, it's a minority that uh, don't salute you. How do you feel about Jacob Zuma at this point in your life, Cynthia? <laughs> Tough question. Um, for me, I just feel that he needs to be held accountable and that um, I know they say the wheels of justice takes long to turn. But it's time now and he needs to be held accountable. He needs to be, um, what's the word, uh, prosecuted. And the final result is he needs to go to prison for having played this huge role in the demise of our country. You talk about the demise of our country. And earlier on in the previous show, Udu Karelsa was asking the question, are we a failed state? And I have various thoughts about that, but I'm interested to know, having done what you've done, having done it because of why you had to do it, do you believe that we are a failed state or do you think that uh, we are moving forward, as you say, with very slow wheels of justice? My personal sense, Michelle, is that we are a failed state. Um, If you look back, Uh, 20 years ago versus where we are now, nothing is working. Our education system is dismal. We do not have a quality education system, so we cannot um, talk about it. Our health system has deteriorated to such an extent that nothing is functioning. Our infrastructure, as in roads, um, the rail system, Um, Our freight system, our passenger transport system is not working. It is not effective. The the rails have all disappeared. Infrastructure that only needed maintaining. Um, Then our water at the moment, we're suffering with water outages, which we should not. And then the main topic uh, regarding our electricity is something in a country where we have 95% sunshine, we should not be having outages as far as I'm concerned. Traffic lights creates a huge impact on productivity when you're stuck um, in, in traffic just trying to get somewhere and the minute it rains, people cannot move. We should be having solar powered traffic lights. We should be having solar powered homes 
and then leaving the main grid for massive um can, uh, you know, manufacturing organizations. So why this is not yet in place for me is, is still, I cannot fathom. Cynthia, you paint a bleak picture, but then I go to your first guest that we have today, Sheldon Morgan from Service in Motion. And I'm thinking, okay, that's not the bleak picture that she's painting. Um, Cynthia's got a guest who is making inroads into making a difference with feeding schemes and working with the elderly. And obviously, I'm not talking about systemic change. I'm talking about individual citizenship change. Talk to us about why Sheldon is your guest for today. I admire Sheldon in the sense that he's just taken this leadership role in our community. Um, And this is now over a couple of years already, and he'll tell you the length of time, that he's gone out and helped smaller communities, firstly through feeding, and then secondly through upskilling, and then with the elderly, even teaching them ways of keeping their minds occupied. So for me, he's shown true leadership in his role um, in our community. And secondly, he's made the difference by getting a whole lot of people along with him, Hmm. whereby everyone gets involved and willing to volunteer and help. So for me, that is where I see our pockets of excellence in South Africa. So although I painted this picture from a failed state, because I'm looking at it, the country from a a state perspective, Mm, but when we look at our uh, our citizens, there are many like Sheldon. And Sheldon is, um, I, I must say, he's the shining light currently in our whole community and has been, and also a huge example for youth. So I, um, I welcome him and thank you for taking the time, Sheldon. Sheldon, thank you so much for joining us. Hello, Sheldon. Hi. Hi, sorry. I said, we... I said good morning and thank you for the opportunity. Uh, good morning to you too. Sheldon, let us ask this story that you have made, the differences that you are making. And on your website, it appears to be, and I stand to be corrected, that a lot of your drive is, uh, it's, it's a potent drive, about making a difference with feeding schemes and working with the elderly. Tell us why you do this. Well, in 2013, I, had a, I was instructed, in a sense, um, that... God said to me, I want you to use your hands for for my people. And that's where it was born, August 2013. I was on the Sea in Thailand. And um, that's where it all began, in a sense. Where um, I then started looking at what I could do with my hands. And if you just look at your own hands, I believe that your name is written on your hands. It's there hmm. for a purpose. The lines on your hands... They appear in different shapes and sizes. They are irregular. And that's what happens in life. That's what happens in the community. That's what happened in Cynthia's life. And um, as a result of um, of the, the hands that we have, we are called to use it daily for service. So each morning when we wake up, um, it is a blessing in itself. And we all have an opportunity to bless others because of God's goodness in our life. So that's where it started, that's where it um, began, and that's how it uh, moved on from there um, since 2013. So how many people are you feeding currently with your feeding schemes? Uh, how many elderly organizations are you working with currently? 
Presently, just yesterday, we fed 350 meals in and around Claremont, down half a year. But to date, since the 24th of April 2020, in, a, in lockdown, lockdown 5, um, when we started this initiative, thanks to um, Chef Owen, who has subsequently passed on, and uh, a partnership with Nosh Food, we have fed um, 73,500 meals. Since, since then, just as, uh, just as our organization, um, since first starting. But prior to 2020, we used to have like a, a monthly plan, I think you spoke of, on the, on the third Saturday of the month, we'd feed in different communities and could reach anything between 350 to 500 meals, depending on uh, who pitched up um, in the areas where we were feeding in. I, I reside in um, River Lee and work mostly in Westbury and the, the surrounding areas there. Yeah. I'm sure, you know, in the, in the, in, in our so-called colored areas, extreme poverty, and sometimes we get yeah. overlooked. So um, we also tie up with organizations similar to us. So when we have, in a sense, and, and all our blessings basically come from friends, friends and family and word of mouth because we don't have no, no donors that make input into the, into service in motion. It's all by... Um, the grace of our people, the grace of God and what people have contributed and able to us to yes. um, sustain this, this service. Yeah. Sheldon, if someone is listening to you and thinking, I'd like to contribute in my own small way and maybe I can do this in a different way, how do they get hold of you? Well, I'm reachable on my, on my mobile number. Um, can I give it? Yeah, go for it. Um, it's uh, 082 yeah. 498 yeah. And and then also via um, email on uh, service in motion also service in motion jhb at gmail dot com that's the easiest one. Subsequently, since then we we have arranged and organized registering as an NPO. So even on the webpage www service in motion um, npo dot org dot that's where we could be found. Also, I also have a Facebook page, Service in Motion NPO. Yeah. So, um, in the media, we try to make an impact because it's important. You know, when people people know that, um, for example, give me the hundred rand to one rand. Um, we we take photos of everything we do and post it immediately, especially on Facebook, so that people know that the money that they contributing to assist the project is being used for the correct purpose. Brilliant. And that we won't have Cynthia whistleblowing on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, saying that it's money what's spent irregularly, like, as you know what happened at SAA. Sheldon Morgan's number is 082-498-5385. I'll give that to you again, 082-498-5385. Service in motion, working with feeding schemes, working with elderly, thousands of meals having been uh, offered to indigent people over the last year or so. We unfortunately have to leave Sheldon and go to uh, uh, Cynthia's second guest, Martina Della Tonia. Cynthia, Cynthia, your second guest is a filmmaker, a PhD candidate, but also, I understand, a whistleblower survivor. So Martina Della Tonia and I met um, 20... 19, end of 2019, mainly because we were looking for whistleblowers to 
to find a way that we could change the legislation. And that's how we met. Mm. And since then, we've become friends. And she does a lot of work in the Cape. She, uh, she lives in the Cape area, Cape Town, and does a lot of work to support whistleblowers, as well as obviously um, trying to do what's right um, in the way the parliament has 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 changed and making it into a far more ethical parliament. Although she's not working there, um, but she can tell you her role currently um, in one of the boards there is to influence um, board members to be far more ethical. So oh. welcome, Martina, and thank you for joining us. Martina, welcome. Certainly, we'd be interested to know how are you engaging with boards with issues of governance, ethics, uh, the King 4 report and the like? Hello, Martina. Hi, good morning, Michelle. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you now. Great. So, yes, Cynthia and I met in 2019, um, and uh, we were, it was such a relief to meet with another person who had gone through a similar experience to me. Uh, I blew the whistle on abuse of power during the fifth parliament in 2015, when, if you remember, Michelle, parliament became a site of extreme violence, uh, attempts at censorship, uh, the signal jammer, the fees must fall, students, and a very brutal strike uh, towards the end of 2019 within Parliament, which saw really uh, my colleagues being shot at with stun grenades and things like that. And as the manager at the time, I was the multimedia manager responsible for all of Parliament's external communications platforms, which I had helped to set up. Uh, I just felt that, you know, um, Parliament, which was, which is the, supposed to be an austere house for governance and for protecting and enhancing the Constitution and exercising oversight over the executive, had kind of lost its path. Um, and I wrote a memo supported by many of my fellow managers, and as a result of that, I was suspended and um, ended my, my work at Parliament. Um, and this experience led me to kind of look at kind of Parliament's own governance arrangements um, and the relationship between Parliament, the media and civil society. One of my frustrations at the time was that no, although the, the media and civil society were looking at state-owned entities and the role of departments in capture, uh, uh, the attention wasn't on Parliament's role in capture, you know, and mm. the weak oversight it was exercising. So that became my area of focus. And then in 2018, um, one of my former colleagues committed a protest suicide in Parliament. And I think that kind of really caused um, many of us to to to, to re-blow the whistle, but from the outside and say, listen, there's something seriously wrong with the Fifth Parliament. What's going on? What are the governance uh, issues uh, looking at Parliament? But I've got a... Um, so, you know the saying, you, may, you get lemons, you make lemonade out of the lemons. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> so I decided to do my PhD that, that explores the issues of the constitutional lacuna and the relationship between Parliament and civil society, um, 
But further to that, um, as as Cynthia alluded to, I, I you know wear whistleblowers and, and, and ethical people who are struggling in organisations, especially organisations around the state. I, I offer support, advice, and mentorship. Um, the interesting thing is that the same parliament. Uh, remember, I worked with the parliament administration, so so I wasn't. Uh, a member of parliament or, or a political appointee. Mm-hmm. I was just there to do a, a, um, my professional job. Uh, but but after after I left, I was I was escorted out of the parliament precinct. A few years later, I was nominated on the Development and Diversity Agency, and I had the full Wait. support of the committee. You were nominated. Uh, Sorry, Martina, you you cracked up a moment there. You were you were escorted me? out, and then a few years later, you were. I was nominated and um, and uh, selected to serve on the board of the Media Development and Diversity Agency, the MDDA, mm. through Parliament, and that was a great honour. And it was between 2017 and 2019 where we had to really, as board members, go in, found an organization that had almost collapsed because of its governance uh, failures yeah. and had to rebuild uh, the organization from the board level up. And it was not easy, but it was an extraordinarily um, uh, a rewarding experience for me because by the time I left the board, there was a new policy in place. There was a CEO. The board was functioning much better. And mm. it just went to, to, to show me that... Okay, Martina, we're going to, unfortunately, your line is really, really bad and we are running out of time. So we're going to close off with Martina Della Togna. Cynthia, in closing, um, where are you now? Cynthia. Thank you. I'm here. Thank you. Yeah. And, and I don't mean literally where are you now, but where are you now yes. as we look forward into your future? And I suppose our country's future as well. Where, where do you want to go? Michelle, um, I've thought long and hard. So part of my main goal right now is to help the whistleblower plight and rights of the whistleblowers Mm. more because I've seen how many have suffered and many call me now because of my public speaking. So um, the mere fact that I've now joined the whistleblower house is an excellent platform to work with whistleblowers. Yeah, I also started a smaller organization called Citizens of Conscience, and that initially was to support whistleblowers. But there we will work more on the advocacy of, of whistleblowers. And um, my intention there is to do training at school level, tertiary level, and into boardrooms about um, holding oneself accountable about being um, ethical and following a moral compass and about um, knowing our Bill of Rights um, in our Constitution. So it's a combination of things because what I've discovered that we have big bad bullies on the playground for children which comes into the boardroom and it's those bullies that are the ones that push the agenda forward and that's how fraud and corruption happens for whatever reason or whatever their needs are, as well as those who have different reasons for being in a boardroom rather than for holding that company's best interest at heart. So, yes, so my goal for the future is that 
uh, to start with me is that I need to always hold myself accountable and that I'd like to pass that on to others that when we start holding ourselves accountable and that we can each try and make a difference where we are. As Sheldon had said in his that um, we all have hands and we, with our hands we can be of service. For me is that um, we can make a difference and be that pebble in the lake where we can help others and our influence can move to a positive influence. I feel that as South Africa, we've become um, too uh, laid back in what's happening around us and allowed for everything to fail. Yeah. We'll leave it there. Cynthia Stimple, thank you so much for joining us. As Arthur Williams is quoted as saying, it's time for us to move beyond the era of the bully into the era of the brave. 10 o'clock, it's time for the news. It's no longer good morning. It's now goodbye.